If you don't have diabetes, you probably don't think about insulin very much, either in its natural form in your body or the human-made form that's officially been saving lives for over a hundred years. One of the lives that was saved early on by insulin as medicine was a young girl named Elizabeth Hughes Gossett. Now, before we dive into her tale, we have to get a basic sense of the role that insulin plays in diabetes. That said, there isn't just one kind of diabetes. That's sort of the first point to know. And I don't have time to go over all the nuances, so for the purpose of this episode, let's just talk about the two main types, which are, as you might suspect, type 1 and type 2. The main player in your body if you have diabetes is your pancreas, and then the other main player is insulin. Your pancreas makes insulin, which is a hormone. Now, your body needs insulin to control how much glucose or sugar is in your blood. If you have too much, that's not good, but it's also not good if you don't have enough. For the most part, when we're eating and drinking our pancreas and insulin tag team and keep our blood sugar levels within ranges that aren't going to be a problem. If you have diabetes, this doesn't happen. However, depending on whether you have type 1 or type 2, your pancreas problem is a little bit different. People who have type 1, like our soon-to-be pal Elizabeth Gossett, have an autoimmune disease. They are born with this pancreas problem. They actually are not able to make insulin and will have to have a medical dose of insulin to survive. On the other hand, people with type 2 diabetes do make insulin, but their body is like, you know what? Nah. This is called being insulin resistant. Now, some people with type 2 diabetes do need the medication insulin because their body really isn't doing the insulin thing the right way on its own. But other people are actually able to manage their blood sugar levels through what they eat and other lifestyle changes, and they don't need to depend on insulin. Someone with type 1 diabetes is, however, dependent on insulin. That said, we've only had the medication insulin for about 100 years. So what did people do before that if they were insulin dependent? Well, to put it bluntly, they died. At the turn of the century, when Elizabeth Gossett was born, people with type 1 diabetes basically just died. There were very few experimental treatments. The, the one that was used the most often was starvation. And this could allow them to live for a few years, but for the most part, a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes was a death sentence. In the early 1920s, there were some researchers at the University of Toronto who figured out which cells in the pancreas got messed up and why people with type 1 diabetes were dying. The clue was this hormone, insulin, that regulated how much sugar was in the blood. Through a series of experiments that, at first, mostly involved trying to suck the insulin out of a dog's pancreas and put it into people, the researchers eventually created insulin that could be injected into a person who had type 1 diabetes and keep them alive. Now, that's a real bastardization of that whole process, and if you want to know more, Google it. Anyway, fast forward to 1928 when 11-year-old Elizabeth Gossett was being starved to death in an attempt to help her live a little bit longer with type 1 diabetes. While many of these diets were around 500 to 800 calories a day, 11-year-old Elizabeth was actually subsisting somehow on 300 calories a day. Her well-connected family heard about the researchers in Canada and literally just asked if they would see their daughter and consider giving her the magic pancreas juice. The doctors agreed to take her on, and she traveled to Toronto, where she would stay for actually a pretty long time in order to be treated. And at first, it it's not that it didn't work, it just, you know, her body 
wasn't making insulin. So all of a sudden being injected with insulin had some effects and she needed to kind of learn as everyone actually with diabetes does how to balance what she was eating with how much insulin she was injecting. By the time she was able to be seen at the clinic, she had withered down to about 45 pounds. So she was about five feet tall, which is still unfathomably emaciated. This was due to the fact that these starvation diets of around 800 calories a day were oddly enough, like the only way to keep people alive with type one diabetes, because basically it kept too much sugar from ever building up in the blood because they just weren't eating very much. Of course, people could not live like that forever. So if they didn't die from the consequences of being hyper or hypoglycemic, having too much or too little blood sugar, they were literally dying of starvation. However, when Elizabeth was able to start getting insulin through injections from these researchers, she stopped dying. She was able to start eating normally again, immediately gained her weight back, and went on to live a long and relatively healthy life. In her life, which lasted about another 60-some years, she had more than 42,000 injections of insulin. Now, if you're wondering why you've never heard of her, if she was one of the first Americans to be successfully treated with insulin, it might be because she never wanted anyone to know. In her adult life, she actually, and somewhat curiously, went to great lengths to hide her diagnosis and actually destroyed all documented evidence of it, including some of her father's papers that made reference to it. Most of her adult life and legacy is actually associated with the Ford Motor Company, where she held a high-ranking position for pretty much all of her career. The people who knew her felt that she hid her diagnosis in part out of fear of being judged or defined by it. There were also people who felt that she might have had a great deal of survivor's guilt, because though she had been fortunate enough to have access to the care that saved her life, so many people did not. And interestingly enough, this actually does track with some of the papers that we do have, because she did not destroy everything. In Toronto, they actually do have a collection of her letters that she wrote to her mother and family while she was in Toronto being treated. In one of her later letters, she talked about her feelings of realizing how lucky she was to be there in the first place. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that her parents were very well connected. Her father was a politician and she was able to go there and was able to pay for treatment. And she recognized, even as a young person, that this was not a situation that everybody could find themselves in. So at one point she actually wrote, we have had several poor people come here to ask about the treatment, and they were eventually turned away. It makes you feel so sorry, and yet you can't do anything about it. I can't get over how fortunate I was to get up here. And it's very true. And actually, in a lot of ways, that is still very true. Even today, getting insulin is not equitable. The big pharmaceutical companies that make it charge astronomical prices for it. And until recently, there was no thought of a generic. For the people who need insulin to survive, it's no longer a question of whether this treatment exists, but can they afford it? And in that sense, we're really not that much farther along than we were 100 years ago when Elizabeth was just a little girl at the turn of the century. Of course, back then when people were still dying of diabetes, it kind of made sense because this treatment was so new and, you know, people had trouble getting to it because there just wasn't enough of it and they hadn't yet made it widely available. But what's the excuse now? <laughs> 